Good morning, I'm Kendi Easley, and I'm so excited to be your teacher to get today. I'm the executive pastor at Bethany, which means that I get to visit multiple locations, and I also get to be part of the Green Lake leadership team. So we are in this series called Portraits, and what we're trying to explain is this idea that we have the opportunity to present Jesus, to be each of us a portrait of Jesus to the world, and that we tend to sort of distort that portrait. So today we're talking about how in Christianity and how in each of us, we can develop kind of an us and them attitude. We're gonna look at the idea that Human beings, this is point number one in your outline, are bent toward hostility. And then we're gonna see that Jesus loves us, liberates us, and lifts us out of that. He brings us into this new reality, which is a feast. So it's a perfect topic for me to celebrate the feast of Jesus. That's what this is about, this big kind of communion feast that we're representing right here, because I've been in a season of feasting. It started last May when I went to three graduations, one of which was my son's college graduation. I love graduations. Like, I love the speeches. I love how happy everybody is. I like the cool gowns. I love the whole thing. And that was kind of an introduction into a month later, my same son got married, and that was the beginning of five weddings that my husband and I did. And wedding feasts are amazing. It's just such a joy to get to be a pastor and watch that couple come toward you and the groom gets all teary-eyed and sometimes there's hugs that happen and then there's a big meal and feasts are just such a wonderful expression of the abundance of God and God's grace. So today we're going to kind of start from where we are divided and we're going to make our way to how Christ unites us. So let's join our hearts in prayer. Great God, I thank you that you don't leave us as we are, people who are looking out for ourselves, um, people who are finding ways to be um, pitted against one another, but that you have broken into this world to say that you want there to be one people, one body, one spirit. So come, Holy Spirit, and do your work in our midst this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So I've recently moved to the city But prior to this time, I enjoyed a life in the suburbs. And we had a shared driveway. And as we kind of were, our kids were growing up, my kids were in high school, I thought, you know, let's enjoy this time living out here on this kind of larger piece of property. We should get some chickens. So it started with just a couple little kind of Easter chicks, so adorable, tiny, tiny. And then I realized they produce eggs lovely, and we eat a lot of eggs. So my flock of chickens began to grow, and pretty soon, when I would let my chickens out, they didn't just stay kind of right in the area because there were just a couple of them. They kind of went everywhere, including across my neighbor's driveway, including up to the porch where they would poop on the porch of my neighbor. This didn't go well for my neighbor. In fact, uh, they asked if we would please put up a fence. So uh, we did put up a fence, and we put up a run, and we tried to keep our chickens contained. And once we had our chickens contained, I noticed that my neighbors on the other side had chickens, and their chickens were not contained. Their chickens were coming under the hedge, they were coming into my garden, they were digging up stuff, they were kind of pooping around, and it was like, well, okay, wait, this is a problem, you know, this is bothering me, but I kind of wanted to be compassionate because I understand about chickens and it's got to be okay, but then I started to notice other things that bugged me about my neighbor. 
you know, we're pastors, so we like to go to bed early on Saturday nights. They like to party on Saturday nights. They like to be loud. They like to have people in the driveway, cars coming and going. And then I noticed uh, they have a tree that was dead, and we asked them to take it down. They didn't take it down. I was worried the tree was going to fall on my chicken coop or on my house. And I started to get this attitude toward my neighbors that was kind of like, I don't really appreciate them. I, I kind of wish there were a fence or like a wall between the two of us. And when I read the scripture for this week, uh, that there is a wall of hostility, I thought of this poem by Robert Frost where he says, something there is in us that loves a wall. And then the poem goes on to, and it ends with the line, good fences make good neighbors. We like to put up a fence. We like to kind of stay in our own space. And today we're going to look at the idea that that's what started to happen even to the people of God. They started to put up this wall of hostility. So if you have been, I hope you will, um, receive this booklet. We have more to give out today. They're called, it's called Portrait, Representing Christ in Our City. It's also available by texting online. If you started it last week, you probably found that there's some kind of intense Bible study questions to get you thinking about the scripture that's offered in the, in the packet each week. It's additional to the scripture that we're looking at on Sundays. And the first thing that that scripture asks is what is the context that the scripture's coming from. How does this text read us and our world? So let's have a look at the context of today's scripture. Uh, The context is this. Ephesians 2 uh, verse 14 says, for he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. The context is that Paul is speaking to the Jews and Gentiles who are now all Christians, and yet they're still divided. So if you might think about what the Jewish temple used to look like, this, it looked like this. There's a lot of walls involved, right? First of all, you can come to the very edge to Solomon's porch. You can just be out on the porch, and that's where Jesus did a lot of his teaching. And then if you're a Gentile, you can just come in past that first little barrier into the court of the Gentiles. If you're a woman, you can go through the beautiful gate, but you cannot go through the next gate, and you can't go to the altar. And then if you see the like most massively walled in area, that's the holy of holies. And priests only went in there like once a year. So you had to not only be a man, not only a priest, but it had to be the special day of the year when someone could go in to the holy of holies. So if you were a Gentile and you were out in the Gentile court, you'd be looking at a wall that looks something like this. It was a big stone wall. And it was inscribed on the wall, basically, cross here at your own risk. Your life cannot be protected if you come past this point. That's how threatening it was to be part of these two groups. And now Jesus is coming and saying, I'm breaking down the wall of hostility. How can they do that? What would it look like? 
It reminded me of the TCU graduation, where my, husband, uh, my son graduated from college. Uh, first of all, it was in a giant basketball stadium, and you had to have a ticket to get in the basketball stadium. I think you actually had to have a ticket to park your car also, but let's just start at the stadium. So you go in the stadium, and special people had a special ticket, and they got to go to a, de a defined area. But most of the rest of us, we just had to look for a good seat. So we're like way up, you know, like way up, nosebleed section. And we're trying to see, okay, what's gonna happen? Can we even see our son? Can we even identify in the thousands? They even had to have two graduations because there were too many kids to fit on the uh, court. So then the procession begins, you know, the music, pomp and circumstance, so I love graduations, I'm like getting teary-eyed even when the music starts, and in comes all the really special people, like the holy of holies. They're wearing those different colors of robes and they've got like hoods and then they have these funky hats and it represents the university where they got their PhD and you know I'm trying to like look them up oh look at that one you know that's Harvard look at that funky hat it's just it's kind of fun except I couldn't see it very well I did have my mother's binoculars so the holy of holies comes in and they go up to the podium and they all take their defined places on the podium these are the important people and then all the graduates start filing in. Now these graduates had to not just have a ticket to graduation, they had to have achieved everything that was needed sort of by the law in order to graduate. And some of you who are starting college are probably thinking, oh my goodness, what do I have to have? I have to have these general units, I have to have specific units, I gotta have units in my major, if I want a double major or a minor, you have to have all these units in these different categories. Maybe you came in with some units to college. Well, these students had all like, gotten it lined up. And if that's you, you're a senior, you should talk to your advisor, make sure you're gonna get everything in the right category so you can march at graduation or at least get the diploma. So in they come and they have to go to their specific seats because their names are gonna be called out a certain way. This is a bounded set. You can't just jump out onto the court and like throw on a purple robe and be part of graduation at TCU. You have to have gone through all the steps. So when we think of a bounded set, it's almost like thinking of it's something that's walled in. And that's how Judaism was. It was, it was an effort to, you had to maintain the law. That's why there's always confessing that that it, we weren't able to achieve it. And in Christ, something new is happening. It's not a bounded set. It's a new kind of set. So when we begin to determine uh, who's in and who's out, when we're in a bounded set, we define uh, what does it take to get inside that circle? When I was in high school, I wasn't a super, I believed in Jesus, but I wasn't like actively, I was going to church on Sundays, but I didn't really know quite what it meant. I wasn't part of any small groups or anything. So I developed my own little small group sharing question. I was kind of an extroverted person, still am I would say, but my little sharing question that I had for my colleagues at school that I was, thought was a safe question was, what kind of belly button do you have? Do you have an innie or an outie? Now, my dad didn't think that was an appropriate question for me to be asking people, but you know, how many of you have an innie, right? Okay then, 
it, what's so embarrassing about admitting it? I had never known there were outies. Like all of a sudden bikinis came out and it's like, wow, some people have these weird belly buttons. I haven't got an any. I didn't even know there were these outies. It began to be for me a kind of a funny little like who's in and who's out. <laughs> you're like me or you're not like me. Isn't that something that we do? We, we want to be around people who are like us. Part of my summer was visiting Rwanda as a part of our mission trip, and it was a different kind of feast. It was really a feast for the soul and how much that I learned. I had always thought that the Rwandan genocide that happened in 1994 was the result of a long-held tension between the Hutus and the Tutsis. I thought they were two tribes that had basically hated each other for centuries. Come to find out, they hadn't even been named Hutus and Tutsis for all that long. They're in the colonizing power, they wanted to kind of understand people, and so kind of an understanding, uh, they tried to describe the two traits that they saw in the general population of Rwanda. And in the Tutu people, they saw a finer-featured body and a, usually a little bit taller body. In the Hutu people, they saw a bit of a broader body and a broader nose. And so they just defined people. Oh, you're a Tutsi, you're a Hutu. And children didn't even really grow up knowing which one they were. And people intermarried. It just wasn't a big dividing wall. Until in the early 90s, there began to be this movement against the Tutsis by the Hutus. And it began to come up in schools. And children, like as young as first grade, would be asked, which one are you? And they didn't know. They had to go home and ask their parents, which one am I? And sometimes mom was one and dad was another, so you became what your mom was. So this controversy just began to brew and brew until there was a point when the Hutus were calling the Tutsis things like cockroaches. And little kids would be saying this to one another on the playground. And the conflict escalated and escalated until people took up machetes and began to kill the Tutsis. It, yes, there was a political movement against the Tutsis. And a million people died in just a few months. It was unbelievable to me to learn how quickly that happened how we can take someone who's other and we can make them the enemy. We can make the wall so high that we do not even want them to exist. And I thought to myself, well, that happened in Rwanda. You know, that's like it happened that one time. But no. At the very end of our trip, we got the opportunity to go through a genocide memorial, which was really moving and profound, and I, I won't walk us through the whole thing, um, but I'll walk you through some of it, because I think you should know. There are people left to tell the story. There's even a book by that title. In this memorial, there's room after room of describing how this conflict developed, how this really massacre, genocide developed, and how the idea of the other becomes someone that you can't even tolerate uh, being in existence. At one point, as we walk through, there was this simple sign that defined genocide. Genocide is the, kill, is the killing of members of a group for the purposes of extermination. The intent was to exterminate. There were bodies everywhere. 
We got to see these pictures. We got to see skulls. It, it was just profoundly moving. And as we're walking through, and my heart is sinking, because I knew that at the end of the memorial, we were going to go into a room where it talked about not just the Rwandan genocide, uh, but also other genocides. And my family experienced such a genocide in Armenia. When I got to the wall uh, with a room where the multiple genocides were um, depicted, there was the Holocaust, there was Bosnia, there was Darfar, and I dreaded to see the wall that was about Armenia. And as we turned the corner, there was a sign that said, Armenian genocide wall removed. And I thought, oh my gosh, did we not have a genocide? No, it was just removed for painting. And so I thought, well, maybe I was sort of protected from having to look at the images that would depict why my grandparents um, fled from Armenia. And this morning, as I went to prepare, I thought, you know what, I should just look at those images and just make sure I, w I won't like claim that there was an Armenian. Like, I wanted to, it's almost like you can't believe it happened, so I wanted to check the history one time, one more time. And as I opened it up, I'm half Armenian, I saw the photos that looked like my extended family for the first time. I read the details that it was over a million ethnic Armenians, Assyrians, and Greeks who were killed over a period of about eight years. As I was seeing these photos for the first time this morning, the way that, that uh, Turkey came into Armenia and, and began to massacre, the, massacre these people, a pop-up appeared on my computer. And you know what it was a pop-up for? A Turkish cotton bath mat. Now, I'd been taught as a little half-Armenian girl that we don't even say the word Turkish. We, we don't refer to those people. They, they are the perpetrators. We were the victims. And I kind of sat there looking at like how strange the world is. Would that have been an Armenian cotton bath mat had that massacre not happened? So I think I have a couple photos of what these Armenian folks look like. They, um, they fled on foot, sometimes with a police escort to get out of the country. And this guy seems to have on his back um, a big rug. I actually own a little rug that that history says it came over with my grandparents, and I wasn't quite sure I believed it till I saw this photo. What is it like to be part of a group that was under attack? What is it like to be part of a group that was the perpetrator? This is what we're seeing in this passage. And this is the amazing thing that I learned and I saw in Rwanda, that God can bring about redemption that we don't have to hold on to hate and division. Rwandans actually no longer identify themselves as Hutus or Tutsis. They say, we are all Rwandans. These are amazing steps of unity in that country. Because there were so many people incarcerated for the crimes of the genocide, they decided to set up courts in local communities so that a local community would get together and they would hear the, cri the atrocious crimes that, people, that Hutu people committed against the Tutsi, Tutsi people of their own community, sometimes within their same family. There would be a Hutu dad who was married to a Tutsi woman and, and he couldn't protect her. 
There were Hutu families who were participating in the massacre in the day, and they had Tutsis hiding in their bathroom. Up to 18 women were hiding in a tiny little bathroom for months. And they couldn't flush the toilet unless the person on the other side who was legitimately in the household flushed the toilet. You've heard about this in other situations, in the Holocaust. People were being protected uh, by those who were accepted by what was happening by the, of the perpetrators. So, in Rwanda today, they're building up a sense of cultural identity that's united, a sense of the country that's united, and they even have new habits. One of them is kind of admired by other health organizations. They've decided that Rwandans, which is a very uh, poor country, need to be in better health. And so every Friday from three to five, it's time for sports. They close down every business and you go out with your business colleagues and play sports in order to become a healthy Rwandan. Wouldn't that be kind of fun? On Saturday mornings, all businesses are closed in order to clean up Rwanda so that Rwanda is a clean place. They're using these ways of building unity to say that there is a hope and a future for Rwanda. There are even communities that are based on victims and perpetrators now living together in community. In his book, Not in God's Name, there's a rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, who describes what he learned when he was studying survivors of the Holocaust, a similar genocide. This is what the Holocaust survivors taught me. Look back, look forward, not back. Build a life, a family, a future, a hope. Hate makes us slaves. Hate makes us slaves. Therefore, let it go. Do not wage war on the children of darkness. Make sure instead that you and your children are sources of light. Make sure that you and your children are sources of light. That feels a lot like what I was taught as a little half-Armenian girl. Move forward. Make a difference. Don't remain a victim. Let God heal. Trust that there's a hope and I think that's one of the things I cling to in Christ, that there is a hope that does not disappoint. There is a community that will always welcome you in. You are a part of something far bigger than yourself, more than you could see or imagine. And that is point two, that in Christ, there is a new humanity. If you were looking at the, the portrait series book, we would be in this second, second little section that says gospel. How does this text bring us good news? There is good news in this text. It's this good news that Jesus loves us as we are. Our unique selves, innies, outies, tall, wide, short, really, really bright, slow thinking, really, really joyful outside, really, really joyful reading a book, really, really joyful playing music, really, really joyful playing sports, introverted, extroverted, whatever the dynamics of your own personality are, whatever the story of your past is, Jesus loves you and me right where we are. And then he wants to liberate us from the, from the things that hold us down. We are not victims to our past. We're not victims to our circumstances. 
We're not victims to being something other than we wish we were. We are children of God. And God wants to be at work in us and through us. And it's the through us part that says Jesus lifts us to being part of his work in the world, part of his kingdom, part of his ministry of reconciliation. Jesus took down the dividing wall of hostility and he reconciled the two. They came to one table. Jews and Gentiles, they passed through all those gates and and something new was created. Martin Luther um, King says, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. You can't hate more and make a difference. You can love more to make a difference. In our passage, Ephesians 15, that little second part of the verse 15 says, his purpose, that's Jesus' purpose, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. It's no longer Jews over here and Gentiles over here. It's one new humanity. That The word is anthropos, like one new human creation in the image of God. He created them, male and female, both in the image of God. And in Christ, both are honored. He makes us one. This is a different way of thinking about what a set is. We could think of this as a centered set. It's not bound with boundaries. It's an invitation into the center, to draw near to the center. To be ava- this center is available, as it said in the video, for all and for every. There's no one excluded. It's not clean up your act and then you can come closer to Christ. It's come closer to Christ. Come on in. Come to the feast. And that brings us to point three, which is welcome. You are welcome to this feast. It's a transformational relationship with Christ and with each other. And it's the idea that when Jesus brings us together, something is different. In Jesus, space is opened up for the healing of the world. That's what David Fitch says in his book called The Church of Us and Them. It's how to break down the church of us and them to recognize that Jesus is opening up this space. It's like he's taking the fence down and saying, come on in. This is represented at this table. It's a space for the kingdom is opened up. A space for you is opened up. In the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup, we are one cup, we are one people. It's like our eyes are opened. And our our selfishness is revealed. The things that would keep us from Jesus are revealed. The things that would cause us to misrepresent Jesus are revealed. Last week when we were talking about the opening of this portrait series, we were saying uh, we invited people to come up and write on pieces of big poster boards and they're over in the CLC. Um, In what ways do you misrepresent Christ? 
And so I want us to actually take a look at those and even read them out loud and see if they resonate with you. And I'm guessing they do with some of you because some of you out here wrote these words. Um, as I read them over, there were so many that talked about our own fear. Fear that we won't be accepted. Fear that we won't be good enough. We talked about our own judgment and condemnation of others and how we make others into the other as a group. So would you join with me in praying these confessions? We misrepresent Christ when we live in fear without hope. We put our image in front of yours. We treat Jesus as a policy, not a person. We don't care for our bodies. We gossip and unabashedly criticize. We stay in our own homes and don't know our neighbors. We are consumers instead of stewards. We are judge instead of love. So the practice for this week, after making that confession, is to come to the table, to come to a feast, to practice feasting, if you will. What would it look like to have a feast in your heart, in your home, the Lord's table is about presence. Yes, it's absolutely about eating. And I think Jesus used the elements because he knew people like to eat. People are gonna gather around tables and they're going to eat. But it's also about a discipline that shapes a group of people to be present to God's presence in Christ at the table. The Lord's table is intended to have us come together and then go out. In the history of the Lord's table, you know, when Jesus first took the bread, it was like he, was, he did say, this is my body broken for you. And he intended that essentially they would become the body. And over time, it's as if it became this kind of this magical, it's, it's actually in Latin, the words um, hocus pocus are what was said when Jesus would say the word, uh, this is my body broken for you. It's like hocus pocus is what it sounded like. So it became this kind of magical, this becomes the body of Jesus. And, and, and then it became, oh, it's in the elements. And it seems as though what Jesus was trying to teach his people is essentially you are the elements. You are what is broken and sent. I'm giving myself to you that you would be sent out to others. We're to come together around this table, not because we all agree with each other, not because we're a bounded set who's abiding by a bunch of rules, but because we're a centered set who's following after the God of the universe, who laid down his life in love. And that's what he was saying when he said he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Broken for you. So that you'd have entry into this table, into this feast of God. And then he, later he said, do this in remembrance of me. So we're to remember that, that God himself became a human being, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, that we would have this relationship with Christ, with God for all eternity. So we come to the table, and those of you who, um, haven't ever come to this table, uh, I invite you. Those of you who've just come to this table kind of out of rote, it's just what we do, I invite you to think about the fact 
that Jesus is meeting us here with his very presence. It's, it's God with us at the table. So feasts uh, are healing. And when we come to this feast, we want to be receiving all that God has for us. We want to invite you to think about this week what kind of feast God would like to create in and through you. And I was thinking about the fact that um, I've seen some feasts that were pretty great, some pretty amazing wedding feasts. A lot of pictures on Pinterest went into making those moments happen. And I've seen some feasts that are pretty profound, that weren't Pinterest-worthy at all. And one of those was in my own life. I'm, I was thinking, I think it's about 10 years almost exactly now, when I was coming through the treatment after being diagnosed with stage 4B breast cancer. It's very serious. I had two rounds of chemo, I had surgery, and shortly after my second round of chemo, I headed into 30 days of radiation. In the 10th week of chemotherapy, I was very weak. And I had a friend who had come multiple times. Um, in fact, we'd had several feasts. We'd, we'd had potato chips many times. We'd had some chocolate chip cookies or just straight chocolate chips. And on this final time, she came with a bottle. And I thought, okay, <laughs> this is good. It's something fizzy. And it was the, she had two glasses, like champagne glasses. And I, I looked around the chemo room and I felt others kind of enjoying my feast. That kind of like that was my graduation day. That was my last day to sit in that chair that I'd, I'd fought for my life. Jesus had given me life. And in that little moment when we're sharing some Martinelli sparkling cider and some potato chips, I felt so thankful to be alive. So thankful to be eating that potato chip and drinking that juice, and I could hardly eat any. A feast doesn't have to be a lot of food. A feast doesn't have to be visually perfect. A feast is a moment of saying, I'm present to the other. It's difficult now to be present to another. In fact, it can be said that the lack of ability to be present to each other is epidemic. They say that restaurants are changing the way they do business because people are coming in and staying on their cell phones for so long and not ordering food. What would it be like for us to just for a few feasts this week ban our cell phones, kind of like a, a pop-up rule? We're just going to put it away for a moment. I'm the chief of sinners on this. In fact, at our anniversary last month, I saw this anniversary card that I wanted to get from my husband, but I, I, it was just too true and it hurt too much. It said, I want to be with you every minute of every day, unless my cell phone rings. Ouch. So here's some guidance on how to create a feast. It's in the portrait guide, and we would love to see your feast. Uh, one of them, one of the pictures, we would love to have you send in whatever picture you have. Maybe it's a feast of the past. Maybe it's a feast that you design. Maybe it's just a little moment that happens between you and a friend or even you and a stranger that you're uh, at table with. When I was in Rwanda, one of the things that I saw was this amazing healing where people from, the, um, from both Hutu and Tutsi tribes 
celebrated together. Um, we were on retreat with the World Relief staff, which is who we went to visit, and we had the experience of being at communion with them, which led to, to dancing, which was absolutely beautiful. And as we were talking about kind of that moment, I said, have you guys ever experienced something like this? And our translator said, yes, there's this Rwandan Women's Day. And what we did, uh, she and friends of both tribes got together and put on traditional garb. And so I wanted to show you what that Rwandan Women's Day looked like. It's a pretty fun feast. Uh, you might not be wearing that bright of clothes when you're at your feast, but wouldn't it be great if we all were? That feast really inspired me so much that I kind of... Um, wanted to share with you that we also had a feast at the end of our trip, and that is me in my Rwandan garb. So I'm gonna put that on one of these weeks when uh, Moses is visiting us. I wonder what your feast will be. Um, here's a hashtag. We'd love for you to send your pictures in. We'd love to see what are Bethany's feasts in the month of October. But today, we come to this feast, this table. It's World Communion Sunday today. It's when people around the world are saying, Christ is center. I want to be at the table. I want to be part of what God is doing. And when we come to this table, when we receive, it's as though then we're sent out. We come and then we go. That the feast is meant to empower the rest of our lives. It's meant to be a ripple effect out into the world that the people of God are a people of unity and love and hope. So it's said that people will come from east and west and north and south. They'll come from the balcony. And if you're online, this is the time to get yourself a little snack because we're gonna gather at this feast. And as the bread and the cup are passed to you, May it represent to you a lavish feast. Um, yes, we, for reasons of making things kind of uh, effective and smooth, we have to put little pieces of bread and we put the juice in a little cup. But it's more than a feast for just you. It's a feast for eternity. It's a feast in which we can say, come Lord Jesus, live in me, transform me. Maybe there are things that you need to lay down today, and that's what the confession was about. For when you come to the table, you want to make space for Jesus. So on the night of his arrest, Jesus took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do this, all of you. For whenever we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we remember the Lord's life and death and resurrection until he comes again, and he will come again. He has broken into our world. Friends, this is the feast of God for the people of God. Receive.